tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 24 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. Well, Season 15 has rushed past us in the blink of an eye. And Episode 24 means that next week is our big season finale. We're excited to present this one to you. It's a story from author Jared Roberts. You might recall some of his previous tales, like The Trees Are Not What They Seem, the Season 8 finale, My Dad Finally Told Me What Happened That Day, and the Season 9 finale, The Hidden Web Page. And with this season's theme inspired by the movies of David Lynch, we're glad to present a very Lynchian finale. This story is trippy, weird, challenging, and a full-on mindfuck, if you'll pardon the expression. So, make sure you're fully braced for next week's show. It will mess with your head, one way or another. But let's not skip ahead to next week right away. This week, we have tales which all revolve around the idea of family. The loving and not-so-loving people who are closest to us, relatively speaking. And now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a couple trying to start a family. But some couples find getting pregnant more difficult than others. And as we learn in this tale from author Jude Ellison S. Doyle, thankfully the couple discovers that eating a healthy diet from their new local co-op makes a new baby seem conceivable. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, and Jessica McAvoy. So, guys, treat the soon-to-be mother well. After all, she deserves the best. Nathan told me about the service the weekend we killed the pig. We'd driven out in a van together, Nathan and me and a few guys we knew from college, heading out of the city to the kill farm upstate. It was November then, and bitter, and we were standing around in a muddy field, which was slowly hardening in the frost, hands in our pockets and windbreaker collars pulled up high to shield us from the cold. None of us were looking at each other. It was taking forever for the farmers to lead us into the kill pen, and all of us were realizing as the weight dragged out into a space that allowed for thinking, that slaughtering a pig, even like this, all together, was going to be more difficult than we'd thought. It's an ethical thing, taking responsibility for your consumption. Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. That was about the level of conversation I was up to. 
We'd packed a cooler full of IPAs to shield us from the cold, supposedly, and I had been dipping into them in our very well-heated rental van all afternoon. I was thinking about whether the pig would fight us. I'd seen movies where pigs ate people, so they had to be some kind of threat. Thinking about it made me want to drink more, and drinking gave me a better imagination. And so now I wasn't cold, but I was lightheaded. And I had a horrible premonition that when we did it, I was going to puke. If you're gonna eat meat, you should know where it comes from. You've gotta own up to ending a life, morally speaking, you know? No doubt, no doubt. Privately, I thought I could understand where meat came from without actually killing any. I could just think about it really hard, or Google pictures of teacup pigs. Still, this was a thing. It had been in the Times and everything. Guys like us did this. Killed a meal. To remind us that we were still animals. Still men. Even in Brooklyn. Wild-sourced protein is good for you, too. Connects your body to the life force. Helps regenerate cells. Boosts fertility levels. It could actually help you and Carol. Carol and I were trying to conceive. I mean, trying was one way to put it. Another was that we had been trying, when we first got married two years ago, and we'd kept the routine up, long after we realized it wasn't going to work. There were other things we could do, medical interventions, we could look into adoption, which was always open to people with our resources. We weren't doing any of that, though. We were just trying, the same way we always had, hoping Carol's body would suddenly change its mind. Nathan looked away from me and out to the iron-gray horizon. When Ulisa and I were trying, we got hooked up with a co-op that delivers really fresh proteins. Kind of illicit. Some of the animals aren't strictly approved by fish and wildlife, you know. It's an underground deal, like raw milk. But I gotta tell you, it really turned things around. Dylan wouldn't be here without it. I looked up at Nathan, squinting against the wind. Something in his voice had shifted, opened up like he was beckoning me into the room where he kept all the Christmas presents. Nathan and I didn't sob all over each other. We handled our problems like adults, but I knew it had been hard for him and Ulisa. Lots of miscarriages, one of them late, six or seven months in, when they say you're out of the woods. They hadn't seemed likely to try again after that. Then, about a year later, there was Dylan. Protein, huh? I said. Like I say... They're underground. You have to prove you want it. Make a sacrifice of certain female organs. My head was swimming, and everything sounded a little weird to me, but I knew that last bit sounded objectively weirder. I looked to his eyes and saw only myself, swimming in the mirrored reflection of his sunglasses. That's why I mention it now. We could arrange something. Spare you the right parts of the pig. Oh. Of the pig, you mean? Nathan laughed, and I laughed back. And a couple of hours later, I was riding home with a plastic-wrapped pig uterus in a paper bag under my seat. It looked ridiculous, like a pink scalloped pillow with an elephant's trunk sticking out of it. I put it out on the stoop before we went to bed, and in the morning when I got up, there was a different paper bag on the front doorstep. The meat looked bloodier, pulpier. It was badly butchered. Still, it did look alive, oozing with fresh red blood the color of lipstick. It was funny. The day before I got that package, I couldn't tell how freshly dead something was. But now, I'd killed a pig. They do fight you, by the way. 
but they don't win. They're trussed up and outnumbered, and they can't fight for long. I didn't know what to do with the delivery. It wasn't a steak or any recognizable cut of meat, just a raggedy chunk of something that had once been an animal. I just plopped it in a frying pan with some butter and gave it to Carol once it looked brown. I did a bad job, but she enjoyed herself. Bits of juice from the probably too rare cut trickling undaintily down her chin. And the next week, when the next bag arrived, I did it again. She's got a weird taste. Not bad, but kind of smoky, maybe? It's wild-sourced. Nathan knows where to get it. He's in a co-op. That was it for the question-and-answer portion. I didn't mention children, because the topic of children between us was an ache. A cry-it-out conversation. And over time, as the crying felt less useful, it felt less and less wise to start the conversation at all. You have to understand that I wanted children. Some guys get roped into it, pulled along by the insistent urge of their wife's body. And even more guys claim they got roped in because it's easier than admitting they wanted to hold their baby. I wanted the baby. I wanted to be a dad. I wasn't sure what I would do once I was one. I sometimes tried to imagine having conversations with my adorably precocious young critter. And I would realize I was just imagining Haley Joel Osment or the little kid in Jerry Maguire. I had no idea what kids were like outside of movies. But I knew I needed one. If it meant serving my wife what was probably dog meat, well, she seemed down with it. And our future son would thank her. So, who was I to stand in their way? The packages kept coming, and the awkward chunk of steak dinners happened once a week. And, one week, I looked up to realize I hadn't heard Carol complain about cramps or seen tampons in the bathroom wastebasket for a while now. She ate that week's meat solemnly, and I could see, how had I not been able to see, that something in her was blooming. It was shining through her skin. The glow thing is usually just bullshit. You tell a pregnant woman to make her feel nice, but it wasn't with Carol. She looked tired, but the air around her was supercharged, vibrating with some magic from the beginning of time. When she told me, I'm not ashamed to say I cried. Partly from fear, I mean, but I did cry, and I was happy. And for that, if for nothing else, I am grateful to Nathan. In the prior week's package, I'd found a wedding ring. Normally, that's just bad hygiene, or you worry for the person who'd lost it, but this was far worse. I'd found the ring finger, too. How do I stop the delivery? Nathan and I were at a bar in Chinatown that I was pretty certain was a cop bar. I felt bad supporting it, politically, I mean. The bathroom graffiti really made you understand some of the problems in our city. But the drinks were dead cheap, and it was a place for men to go. Nothing fancy or nice about it. The bartender treated you like shit, and you got your $3 beer, and you drank it under a neon sign in silence. Nathan furrowed his brow at me. Why would you want to stop? Nathan was my best-looking friend, if I thought about it. Not that I thought about it that often. He had a really deep voice. He had two-day stubble every day. He looked handsomely disheveled until you realized he must have been using clippers. He wore a suit everywhere, even to the cop bar, 
which raised the question of whether the bartender was actually crusty or just thought Nathan was an asshole. The point is, people were inclined to listen to Nathan. If he had a certain reaction, that seemed like the reasonable one to have. Even though I'd come to the bar prepared with a long list of reasons, unsanitary conditions, don't know what the meat is, found a human finger, and so on and so forth. They all suddenly seemed like bad ones. Nathan ate this stuff, presumably every week, and he wasn't worried. What was my problem? Carol's pregnant, so we don't need it anymore. All the more reason to stay on the program. Trust me, a pregnancy is hard to carry over the finish line, especially at Carol's age. I looked into my beer, watching the red, white, and blue of the Budweiser sign float and blur across its pissy surface. Look, I don't tell this story often, but you know Ulysses' last miscarriage? It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. I looked up at him, startled. It was such a private thing to say. Nathan was cagey with his private life, even when he was drinking. We were already in the co-op. We stopped as soon as we had a healthy pregnancy. That makes sense, right? Somewhere in that second trimester, they can start to detect things. Anomalies. When we went in for one ultrasound appointment, they told us the kid could be born if we wanted, but he wouldn't have a brain. It just didn't develop. The whole top of his skull was missing. Jesus. I could still technically feel my body located in the bar. I felt the cheap, tattered pleather of the bar stool and its chrome rungs under my feet. I could hear bad hair metal playing on the jukebox. But the core of me was floating in a void. I thought about how hard it would be to spark a life in Carol's body, but I hadn't thought about the rest of it. How hard it would be to put a human together from scratch. How helpless I was, how helpless we both were, to determine the shape of what she made. Well, next one, we got deliveries all the way through. And you've seen Dylan. He's great. But losing a pregnancy that late? It changes you. I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy what you, Lisa, went through. I nodded silently. Saying anything more would damage the trust he'd shown me. Or I'd just start screaming. You really want every advantage for Carol. She deserves the best. There were other signs. Sometimes there was a little skin attached to the meat. Sometimes I could identify the fine whorl of body hair, or the articulation of a calf muscle or a bicep. After my talk with Nathan, I paid no mind. I was making a human body, or Carol was, so maybe some other bodies had to be sacrificed to the task. So what? They always are. Carol ate the meat in deeper and deeper silence each week her appetite slowing into reverence. It was spiritual, the way she bent her head to the task. It was like she didn't even know I was there. I could see the glow of the life in her, flickering wilder and brighter as she swallowed. And I knew I was doing a good thing. I was a provider, a Neanderthal dragging a fresh kill back to the cave mouth. And that's why I never told her. A provider doesn't complain about what he has to do. He just gives his family what they need. He does until he can't. One Sunday, when I poked my head out of the door checking for that week's delivery, the paper bag wasn't there. I made some excuse to Carol, but we argued. She was teary and angry. She shut herself in the bedroom and slammed the door. I spent all that week waiting for the next Sunday, 
and when that Sunday came, the doorstep was empty again. This time, there was a note taped to my door. Introductory period exceeded, the note read. First shift owed. Nathan nodded wisely at the note in my hand. Ah, they're going to put you on the harvest floor. Harvest? We were back in the cop bar. Nathan perfect in his suit. Me sweating and clutching my beer so hard I nearly folded the plastic cup in half. Harvest was not a word I wanted to hear at that moment. It sounded too much like a euphemism. You harvest plants. What you do with an animal is kill it. It's a co-op. You've got to start cooperating sooner or later. You didn't warn me about this, you piece of shit. Some stronger, some more confrontational version of me shrieked in my head. You never mentioned this. It was true. He hadn't, yet there he was, smiling at me. Looking like a guy in a beer ad or a Hanes commercial, and it felt weak to be angry with him. Nathan was cool. Nathan was reasonable. Nathan had it together. And if you were mad at Nathan, that felt like a sign that you'd failed to be sufficiently Nathan-like in your own thinking. It felt like you were the problem. I... I won't be able to do that. My tongue was thick in my mouth. I sounded stupid or drunk. I knew I was both. I didn't even ask what the that was because I knew that. Whatever it was, I couldn't do it. Have you asked Carol if she wants to stop? I shook my head. It hadn't occurred to me that you Lisa might know about the service, or that she and Nathan might discuss it. It evidently hadn't occurred to Nathan that I might keep it secret. I think you should ask her. I mean, it's her body. Save yourself, though. I waited for him to yell at me, or threaten me. He just ordered another beer and changed the subject. That's what made me feel the smallest. I didn't pose a threat to him. He wasn't worried about what might happen if he let me go. He didn't have to be. I stumbled out of the bar into the subway. My cell phone rang. It was Carol calling from the hospital. It's nothing. It's nothing. I just had some symptoms they thought might be preeclampsia. It's nothing. The second she hung up the phone, I was pulling out my messages and frantically texting Nathan. You're a good father, he texted back. The next night, we were on the harvest floor. Nathan drove me to the harvest at midnight, using a worn-out undershirt as a blindfold. I mean, of course he did. There's always a blindfold in a midnight drive in these stories. They don't mention the smell, the way I was left sucking in Nathan's rank pit sweat and the stale lavender ghost of his cologne. The whole way there, I kept imagining myself hunting some homeless person down in an alley, yanking college girls off the streets as they stumbled out of bars. I didn't know what kind of weapon they'd make me use. A gun, if I was lucky. Or maybe a hammer. Or a blade. Like you do with livestock. How had we killed the pig? I could barely remember killing the pig. It was supposed to be a defining experience. It was supposed to make a man out of me, turn me into a person who took responsibility. Yet so many other experiences had come between that one and this one, each one washing away and dimming what was supposed to be some superlative moment. It didn't matter anymore. Killing had just become another thing I'd tried on a weekend. 
Nathan stopped the car and pulled my blindfold off. I braced, waiting for him to hand me the weapon. What I realized, as light flooded my eyes and made me blink, was that we were indoors, some kind of factory, with a wide door for loading and unloading trucks. I sniffed, involuntarily, trying to clear my nose of Nathan. That's when I recognized it. Not a factory, a slaughterhouse. The bodies were stacked at the far front of the room. There were at least 20 of them, a pile high enough that a tall man had to pull them down from the top for processing. They were dead already, with holes punched in their foreheads or throats slit. Whoever killed them had used humane methods. I tried to feel relieved by that and by the fact that all the corpses were men. They were old, young, their clothes were often nice and sometimes tattered or outdated in a way that spelled poverty. But they were guys, people who had at least theoretically been powerful. We were murderers, I told myself, but we probably weren't rapists, which ought to make a difference. It didn't. Next to the bodies was the conveyor belt, and in front of the conveyor belt were men, heads bent, doing the work I'd been sent to do. I'd gotten so used to receiving the chunks of meat, inexpertly hacked up and ragged, that I thought I was immune to the sight of death. What I had not considered, what I ought to have considered every time I saw it, was that someone had to do the hacking, and that each chunk belonged to a man who had once been whole. As I watched, a man wearing an apron and rubber gloves dived into a bearded old man's slit abdominal cavity and removed the intestines, scooping them out with both hands. He slipped and grabbed them too hard, and he ripped one right in half, spilling shit all over the conveyor belt and the scrawny, hawk-nosed face of the dead man below. I could smell it from across the floor, even though that floor smelled like a thousand other things. I told myself not to throw up, I told myself not to pass out. I only listened to one of those orders, and my dinner came out fluid and hot, and tasting of cumin and acid. From the same slick pink cavity that those men were steadily ripping out of the other bodies. I stood bent over, hands on my knees, dizzied by the unwelcome awareness that my body had an inside. Nathan nodded and patted me on the shoulder as I choked it up. That's right. Better to get it out now. It'll happen a few times on the first shift. It does for all of us. But you don't want it coming out on the conveyor. I could have screamed. I could have pleaded. I could have made a spectacle of myself. Would you like me more if I had? But I already felt weak, puking in front of everybody. I already felt myself to be visibly not in control, visibly frightened and I knew that the other workers' reactions was probably worse than pity. So I just wiped my mouth and let Nathan lead me to the pile of aprons and rubber gloves. Will I have to kill anyone? Not this shift. We were closer to the bodies now, and I could see that one of them was looking at me. He was a young guy, athletic, with an expensive watch and thick, golden-brown hair. It poked out from his shirt collar, stood stiff along his arms, edged his jawline. His brain leaked out a little from the perfectly symmetrical hole between his eyes. What if I tell the cops this is going on? What if I don't show up to the next shift, just tell you I want to stop? Nathan grinned down at me. Buddy, who do you think these guys are?
It's gotten easier over time. That first night, I just hacked through any piece of the body that was available, barreling through shit smell and blood spatter, keeping my eyes open only after I'd hurt myself with a misaimed blade. I got used to it. I eventually used the saw with purpose. I dry heaved more than I vomited, and when I did vomit, I knew where to aim. I had to harvest every night that week. Then I got a week off, then two weeks on. I never got a fixed schedule, but it was considerate, as far as it could be. The bosses like to ramp up slowly, in terms of the work they make you do. The slaughter floor is worse than processing, by the way, but only a little. Like I told you, they fight, but not for long. And they don't win. Not when it's a bunch of guys and one trussed-up animal. It's about ethics. That's what Nathan told me. If you're going to eat this stuff, you have a duty to know where it comes from. I processed Nathan about two weeks ago. I don't know what happened. He always seemed so all-in. I guess they asked him to do something that even he wasn't capable of. I was glad I got to do his processing, though. He would have wanted someone who took it seriously, who understood the moral responsibility involved. I want to tell you that getting the meat back fixed our pregnancy, made Carol healthy again, but you know I can't tell you that. She yelled at me more over the next few months, ran into our room and slammed the door more often. I think she's been in there for three weeks now. I haven't seen her. I haven't wanted to. The noises behind that door aren't coming from something you want to see. What struck me after we butchered Nathan was that I actually hadn't seen Ulysses since before Dylan. Not in person, I mean. It struck me that Dylan didn't really look much like Nathan, or like Elisa either, that I had no real proof he'd come from their bodies. It sounds paranoid, but when I see the shadows in our bedroom through the blinds at night, it seems like a question worth asking. What I see is enormous. It breathes heavy in the night when I get home from work. A sacrifice of certain female organs, Nathan said. I guess I should have known he didn't mean the pig. What we're sacrificing for, and what it wants, I may never know. I don't think I'll survive to see its crowning. My son will be born soon. He's been fed from the beginning on the flesh of weaker men. When he arrives, he will be hungry. He will reach for his father. Family reunions are special times. Gathering around tables full of food, playing games, reminiscing about family history. It's heartwarming, really. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jennifer Winters, we meet a family who take their reunions very seriously. They go the extra mile to make sure everyone gathers together. Joining me in performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Danielle McRae, Sarah Thomas, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, Andrew Tate, Mike Delgadio, 
Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, Peter Lewis, and Erica Sanderson. So there's no reason to miss the big event. If you need the time, you can always take a furlough. Aunt Louise and Micah's mama had stuck about a hundred cloves into the skin of the ham before they hauled it into the oven earlier in the afternoon. Now they were heating up honey, corn syrup, and butter to make the glaze while the other women milled around the kitchen as they worked on their own dishes. Micah could have eaten just the glaze with a spoon and that would have made him happy. The rolls were rising on the kitchen counter and two chocolate pies were cooling on the table. The kitchen smelled sweet and spicy, almost like Christmas. Micah was trying to figure out how to sneak a taste of the glaze when cornbread started barking outside. Micah Lee. Mama still stirring the glaze as Aunt Louise took the gloriously roasted ham out of the oven with a burst of clove and cured pork perfume. Do you want to go outside and play with cornbread? I'm worried that he'll get under somebody's tires with all these people driving up. Yes, ma'am. At six years old, Micah had learned that when his mother asked if he wanted to do something, it really meant that he had to do it immediately and without argument. Besides that, he was always happy to play with cornbread, and he didn't want to sit still long enough to imagine his best friend under anybody's tires. Hopping down off the bench that sat alongside the kitchen table, Micah skipped across the room, through the screen door, and down the wooden steps into the backyard. Fall wasn't quite in the air yet, but it was almost, its wood-smoke-scented fingertips dancing on the edge of the late afternoon. The backyard was filled with men and the older children. The men were fussing with the deep fryer where they would later cook breaded catfish, hush puppies, and potatoes until they were barely recognizable. It'd be up to the women to make the slaw and slice the raw onions. Micah remembered the last family dinner, which had also consisted of all the traditional fare, along with Aunt Louise's world-famous baked beans. There'd been too much food. Mama had said that they would do better the next time and not make so much, but there was even more food this time. When Micah had pointed this out to Mama earlier, she'd gotten ill with him and told him not to sass. Cornbread was hanging around the men, walking back and forth and wagging his tail as if expecting a hush puppy, even though the oil wasn't even hot yet. When he saw Micah, his mouth dropped into a happy grin and he ran over for a scratch. As Micah loved on his brown and white mutt, he watched his older cousin struggle to put up the badminton net. Why are we even bothering? Paula grumbled as she worked with Andy to get the pole deep enough into the ground so that it wouldn't lean all lopsided. It's gonna get dark in an hour or so. We can't play in the dark. Byron, who was working the other pole into the ground, answered without looking up from his task. We'll have about an hour to play then. Paula made a grumpy, grumbling noise that Micah had noticed her making more and more lately. 
We won't be able to play after Mamaw gets here, and who knows when that'll be. Last time we were waiting to eat until way after dark because she was so late. I kind of like that we don't ever know exactly when she's going to get here. Andy let go of the pole, satisfied that it was secure in the ground. Paula stood back to admire the net. You kind of would. Are we going to play or are we just going to stand around here and fart? Micah laughed, scandalized that Paula had said an ugly word, big as day. Uncle Ray, Patrick and Paula's daddy, shouted over to her to be a lady, but Micah could tell that he wanted to laugh too. For the next half hour, Micah and Cornbread played in the backyard, near the tree line. More cars arrived, hauling in more relatives. His daddy's other brothers were there with their wives and kids. Some of the younger cousins joined Micah and Cornbread, tossing a tennis ball and watching Cornbread run around with his lopsided gallop. The teenagers took turns playing badminton while the fish crackled and popped in the fryer. Over the din, Micah heard a feline wail. Daddy's youngest brother, Uncle Luke, was walking away from his car, carrying a bundle in his arms. Tom, where can I put this cat for now? Daddy stood up from his chair by the fryer and nodded towards the shed behind the house. As the two men walked past Micah and Cornbread, the bundle in Uncle Luke's arms meowed. Micah heard the wail again and saw his Aunt Patsy peering after the two men, her face screwed up with sadness. Why does Aunt Patsy have a cry face? His cousin Patrick, who was older and knew things, answered. Because she loves that cat the best. It's her favorite, favorite cat. Micah stared after the men and the mewling cat. He managed to ponder the why of the situation for all of 30 seconds before he was distracted by his dog, ball in mouth and a wagging tail. They began playing again, the sequestered feline forgotten. Micah and Cornbread were wrestling on the ground near Mama's kitchen garden when another car pulled up the driveway. It was a fancy car, Micah noted, all shiny chrome and apple red. Cornbread abruptly stopped playing and took off running to the shed, crawling underneath the structure. Micah looked after him, gradually becoming aware that everyone, young and old, was saying the same thing over and over in frantic whispers. He's here! He's here! Jack McDaniels is here! Instinctively, Micah moved over to stand with his older cousins. All of the children had lined up in sort of impromptu formation. Two rows, youngest to oldest, from front to back. The men all stood, and the woman filed out of the house as Jack McDaniels stepped out of his fancy car and walked towards the grown-ups. Mr. Jack smiled, but Micah didn't like it. It was the same smile worn by the dark, hurtful things that Micah imagined lived under beds and deep in the woods. Sometimes, when Micah couldn't sleep, he'd lie in his bed and imagine all those things, the hurting things, and he knew that they were real and waiting. But as soon as the sun came up, he wasn't so sure that they were real. Sometimes he heard people say that there were real monsters in the town of Rhodes, but Micah's family lived way out in the country, 
a good 20-minute drive from town. Jack McDaniels lived in Rhodes proper. In fact, Daddy sometimes said that Mr. Jack owned Rhodes. Or was it that Mr. Jack was Rhodes? Either way, his driving out to their house was a big deal. Micah's daddy wiped his palms on his pants as he took big steps towards Mr. Jack. Mr. Jack, we heard you were in town, but we thought you might send one of your boys tonight. It's good to see you, sir. Mr. Jack's smile got even wider, and Micah didn't like it one bit. It was too wide, like it could unhinge at the jaw and swallow every one of them up. His hair was gray and thick, with a matching mustache. He wore a suit, the coat unbuttoned. Micah saw that instead of a belt, a necktie was threaded through the loops on his pants. Micah stood still, hoping that someone would reach down and take his hand. Micah didn't dare reach for anyone's hand. He realized that he was afraid that moving any part of his body might attract Mr. Jack's attention. He finally dared a quick look at his older cousins. Patrick and Byron were looking towards the newest arrival, their faces almost shining with fascination. They both looked like someone famous was standing a few feet away in the yard, not the owner of the funeral home in Rhodes, a man who doesn't even have a belt. Micah looked at the other kids. They all had the same kind of look on their faces. A weird happiness, Micah decided. That's what their faces showed. Weird happiness. All except for Paula. Paula looked scared and angry. She also looked like she might throw up. How's life treating you, Mr. Jack? Uncle Luke almost sang as he shook Jack McDaniel's hand. Oh, if I were any better, there'd be two of me. All the adults and kids threw their heads back and belly laughed, except for Micah and Paula. Paula noticed Micah and took his hand. She was shaking. Micah decided that he wouldn't like it if there were two Mr. Jacks. Not one bit. Well now, who's ready for the Mater Familias to arrive? Mr. Jack rubbed his hands together and then clapped them once. All of the adults started shouting, I am, or we are. Even Micah's cousins, except for Paula, started shouting, clapping, moaning. Daddy put his hands together, like he did when he was asking the blessing on the food, and Micah's mouth dropped open as he saw that he was crying. Daddy, he was crying the same way he always told Micah not to. Oh, Mr. Jack, we're ready for a miracle. Thank you so much for making this happen for us every year. You're truly a servant of the Lord. Daddy finished speaking to Mr. Jack and opened his arms, looking around at the gathered relatives. We don't understand why we were chosen for this gift, but we receive it humbly and with joy. Mr. Jack came himself this year to bring Mama to us. We're honored, Mr. Jack. Aunt Louise really did look honored. Aunt Patsy abruptly turned and darted back inside. Mr. Jack watched her disappear into the house. He glanced at Uncle Luke, who just nodded and shrugged. Mr. Jack nodded and grinned at Uncle Luke. Daddy and Uncle Luke held their hands towards the shed, and Jack McDaniels led the way as they walked past the group of kids towards it. 
Reckon they'd let us go with them into the woods if we asked? Paula scowled fiercely at her brother. Don't you dare, Patrick. Come on, Micah, let's go inside. You need to wash your face and hands. When they got to the bathroom, Paula let Micah wash his own face. She knew that he was a big boy, and she treated him like one. That's why he loved her so much. When he finished washing, Paula leaned over the sink and splashed water on her own face. Her face dripping, she stared at the mirror. This isn't right. Mama shouldn't be here. And that Jack McDaniels, he is Rhodes. And Rhodes is just... Ugly and mean? Paula smiled down at him. She kissed Micah on the head, then held him close. He could smell her armpit. Yeah, ugly and mean. You feel it, don't you? Micah thought for a minute. He didn't know what she was talking about, but he knew that something was wrong with the air this evening. He usually loved family gatherings, all food and fun, but he didn't like it when Mama visited, and he felt guilty for thinking this. They weren't allowed to tell anyone about her visits, not even the pastor. If they told anyone, Daddy had said, Mama wouldn't be able to visit anymore. Even worse, the state may come and take Micah away, but Micah knew that wasn't true. One of his grown cousins had a wife for a little while. After he brought her to one of Mama's visits, she got all upset and left him. She told some people about Mama, and everyone in the family got real mad. Nobody believed her, though, and she and Micah's cousin got a D-I-V-O-R-C-E, and she had to go to the nervous hospital in Tupelo. Then she died not long after she got out of the hospital. Mama said that there was some kind of bad gas or air in her apartment, and she died in her sleep. So young. Then Mama would shake her head. And as far as the state taking Micah away, that was just silly. Mississippi was a big piece of land shaped like a chewed-up toothbrush. How could it take Micah away? Micah, take this plate of food to Cornbread. Micah took the bowl of food and walked out back towards the shed where Cornbread hid. Micah set the bowl down and looked around for his dog. The door of the shed was standing open and Micah figured that the men had already taken the cat out and into the woods. Cornbread, come here, boy. The whimpering was coming from beneath the shed. Micah gently coaxed Cornbread out, scratching the dog's head when he cautiously peeked out from the crawl space beneath the shed. Hey, boy, what's got you scared? Too many people? Cornbread made his way out of the shed, but instead of eating, he pressed up against a kneeling Micah who put his arms around him and rocked. They'll be gone in a few hours. A boy and his dog, a sight of which I shall never tire. Micah looked up and saw Mr. Jack making his way out of the trees towards him, that hurting grin on his face. Cornbread was back under the shed in a flash. Mr. Jack had walked with Daddy and Uncle Luke into the woods, it seemed. Micah hated those woods. There was a tiny, ancient graveyard where some of his dead relatives were buried, and a deep well that his mother swore was a death trap waiting to happen. 
She told him to never go past the little creek that bordered the woods, but she didn't have to worry. Micah would never go into those woods, not even for one of those new Atari games that hooked up to the TV. Cornbread didn't like going into those woods either. Thank you, Jesus. From the direction of the thick trees, Micah heard sick sounds. Someone was throwing up. The deep heaves sounded painful, and they made Micah's mouth feel dry and his tongue thick. Jesus, Luke, it wasn't that bad. Get yourself together. You want Mama to see you like this? Micah heard his uncle hawk and spit loudly. Lay off. It was nastier this time. The two men emerged from the woods and walked towards Mr. Jack, who held out his hand for a goodbye shake. Daddy reciprocated. Not staying for dinner, Mr. Jack? No, sir. I'd best head on to the house. Driving these back roads after dark is a bit dangerous for a townie like myself. Besides, this is an occasion best left to close family. Mr. Jack shook Uncle Luke's hand, then made his way to the car. In a moment, he was down the long driveway and onto the gravel road, headed back to Rhodes. The two men stared after him, then walked towards the house where Uncle Ray waited by the door with news. You need to deal with Patsy. She's taking it hard, poor thing. If you have to discipline her, you should probably do it before Mama gets here. I can handle my wife. Uncle Luke puffed his chest out a bit, and the men walked into the house, the screen door thwapping closed. Micah leaned down and whispered to Cornbread, who was still completely hidden under the shed. Mr. Jack's gone, boy. I have to go see Mama and eat dinner. You take a nap. Inside, everyone was gathered in the kitchen. There would have been more room in the living room, but Mama had come in through the kitchen last year, so Micah reckoned that's why everyone crowded in there. Nobody said a word. They didn't have to. Mama would arrive any second now. The air in the house felt still. Then Micah detected a kind of buzzing. Not a buzzing sound, but buzzing air. It made his ears itch down inside where he'd have to use a Q-tip to scratch it. The lights got low, then high again, like they did sometimes when it was raining hard. Uncle Ray drew in a sharp breath of air, then yelled out, (gasps) She's here, Mama. Micah heard shuffling footsteps and saw his grandmother standing in the living room, He figured that he and Uncle Ray were the first two folks to see her arrive. Everyone else had been staring at the kitchen cabinets under the sink. Micah remembered the sight of those cabinet doors last year, bursting open as Mama crawled out, arriving for her visit. He was relieved that she didn't come in that way this year because it had made him feel scared. When he'd told Daddy how Mama's arrival had made him feel... Daddy had spanked him and made him sit inside the cabinet with the doors closed for a whole hour. Sit in there and count your blessings, young man. Mama was wearing a purple dress and house slippers. Her hair was bright white and her glasses perched on the tip of her nose. Her back was hunched over from all those years of working hard for us kids, Daddy would say. She was smiling the Jack McDaniels smile. Suddenly, everyone was moving, 
taking turns hugging Mama, kissing her cheeks, asking if she was hungry. Kids, y'all line up to say hi to your grandmother. The cousins hastily formed a line as Mama was helped into a chair, bumping and shoving each other in an effort to be the first. Only Paula and Micah moved to the rear. Paula managed to slip out of the room without being noticed, but Micah had no such recourse. The last in line, when his turn came, he took a deep breath and stepped up towards Mama, who placed a hand on each of his shoulders and squeezed. Well now, Micah Lee, how you grown? Give your Mama some sugar. Mama leaned over and offered her cheek for a kiss which Micah dutifully gave. Her cheek was warm and wrinkly and smelled like wet autumn leaves. Mama pulled back and looked into Micah's eyes with her own cloudy blues, made huge by her bifocals. Can't you smile for me, little one? Aware that his parents were watching, Micah worked his face into the sweetest smile he could muster. Mama nodded, smiled back, then looked up and around the room. Good. Where can old lady get some to eat? Everyone laughed, and the next half hour was a flurry of food and chatter. Mama sat at the table while the woman piled plate after plate full of catfish, ham, and all the other foods that Mama loved. Mama ate ferociously and without manners. Food dripped down her chin. She didn't finish one mouthful without shoving more in. Daddy sat next to her and wiped her face as needed. Everything as it should be, until Mama abruptly stopped eating and stared, slack-jawed at the old wedding picture of her and Papa that hung on the wall opposite her chair. Mama? Mama, are you okay? Is the food not setting with you? At that, Mama's head snapped back, Eyes pressed shut. Micah stood from his seat at the children's table and tried to inch his way out of the room and into the hall. He didn't know what was happening, but he knew that he didn't want to see it. Mama's eyes popped open, no longer blue, but completely gray. Her face contorted in a mask of agony and sadness as she shouted in a despondent wail. Let me go! Then she was fighting herself, tearing at her face, hair, arms. Daddy and the uncles threw their arms around her, grasping at her hands so that she couldn't tear at her flesh. Mama wailed, much like Aunt Patsy's cat. Please, let me go! Aunt Louise appeared beside the melee, a plate with a large wedge of chocolate meringue pie in hand. Mama, here's your pie. We made your pie. Look how nice the meringue turned out. As she waved the pie under Mama's chin, the old woman calmed down. Micah, easing back into his chair at the kids' table, watched as her eyes cleared from snot gray to cloudy blue, and the smile returned to her face. She tucked into the pie... Micah's mom came up behind her with a comb and smoothed out her cottony hair while she finished her first piece of pie. As she ate, Uncle Ray fell to his knees and buried his face into Mama's side. 
Oh, Mama, Mama, it's a miracle. You're such a miracle. Mama kept eating the pie, patting Uncle Ray on the head, but not looking at him. Get up from there, son. You're a man. Uncle Ray jumped to his feet, wiping away tears. Someone had refilled Mama's plate with another slice of pie. Mama didn't even bother using a fork to gobble down this piece. Micah realized that his stomach didn't want any more food, and his mouth tasted sour. <laughs> hey, Mama, remember that thing you used to do with your false teeth? Kids, would you all like to see your grandmother do her funny teeth trick? Everyone shouted the affirmative, and Mama's face took on a mischievous air. She pressed her eyes tight, then opened them so that they were wide and bugging, while simultaneously using her tongue to thrust her false teeth out. They jutted far past her lips, and she caught them just as they fell. Even Micah thought this was funny, and the whole group laughed until they cried. After dinner, everyone moved to the living room. There weren't enough places to sit, so the floor was full of people sitting crisscross and others leaning against the walls. The grown-ups took turns telling Mama the news from the past year. Our football team ain't no good at all. Jack McDaniels' son should be graduating and moving back to town soon. There's a pizza place in Rhodes now. Do you know what a pizza is? Ronald Reagan is still the president, God help us. Mama didn't say much. She mostly smiled and nodded. A girl's voice cut in through the sea of chatter. Where have you been all year? Everyone looked around towards the hallway from which Paula emerged. Stepping over the folks sitting on the floor, she made her way towards Mama, a fearful but determined look on her face. Where have you been? Where do you go? How do you get here? Paula shouted the questions as her father made for her, tripping over relatives as he went. Mama just stared at Paula, her face split into a huge grin, too huge for her face. Uncle Ray grabbed Paula's arms and led her back down the hall, his hand clasping so tightly that his fingers lost all color. Not another word. Don't you fight me. Paula wasn't, from what Micah could see, resisting being walked down the hall one bit. You'd like that, wouldn't you? It'd give you an excuse. The two disappeared down the hall, and a door slammed. Micah felt tears pricking the corners of his eyes as he heard the unmistakable slap of a belt against bare skin. Mama let out a giggle. Aunt Louise spoke. Why don't we all go into the yard, get the fire going? We'll set up your chair, Mama. Just sit tight. Micah managed to stay inside as the relatives filed out of the house into the backyard, chatting and laughing nervously. Micah! A voice sing-songed his name. He looked to see Mama grinning at him. Want to see Mama's funny trick again? With that... Mama jutted her false teeth out, only this time her lips went with the teeth, which opened to allow a point of egress for an impossibly long tongue. The wet, gray tongue writhed like a snake as it grew longer, longer, until it brushed the tip of Micah's nose. 
Micah tried to scream, but he couldn't provide his lungs enough air to do so. Instead, he squeezed his eyes shut and willed his feet to move him away before Mama's tongue touched him again. All right, Mama, we have a nice campfire going outside. Let me help you out. Micah's daddy swept in and helped Mama to her feet, and Micah saw that her grin was back where it should be. Daddy hadn't seen a thing. Micah needed to pee badly, and he ran down the hall to the bathroom, hands pressed to his crotch. He stayed in the bathroom as long as he figured he could without getting into trouble for ignoring Mama. As he walked back through the living room, he saw Paula standing by the bookcase, the F volume of the World Book Encyclopedia in her hand and the thoughtful frown on her face. You okay, Paula? Oh, yeah. It was just a whipping. With that, she lowered the book so that Micah could see the pages. She pointed to a photograph of a man. Who do you think that is? That's Mr. Jack. Mr. Jack in black and white. Paula made a little, huh, and looked at the picture again, tracing it with her finger. Then she closed the book and placed it back onto the shelf. Nope, it's William Faulkner. Mississippi's favorite literary son. Micah didn't know what to think about that, so he didn't. Paula took his hand, and they headed outside. They joined everyone around the campfire, where people were taking turns animatedly sharing their favorite stories of fun times with Mama, or repeating nuggets of wisdom she'd bestowed them over the years. Everyone ran the gamut of laughing, nodding in solemn agreement, or dabbing at tears. Everyone except Aunt Patsy, who was off to the far side of the driveway, vomiting. Paula sat on the ground and drew Micah onto her lap, where he curled himself into her arms and dozed. When he opened his eyes, the sky was completely dark, and the fire had burned down into a sluggish red glow. Mama slapped her hands to her thighs, then struggled up out of her chair. Well, y'all, it's about time for me to go. This was met with everything from gentle sounds of dismay to outright sobs. Micah's relatives swarmed around Mama so that he couldn't see her. A heartbroken voice that sounded like Aunt Louise rose above the noise. Mama, oh, Mama. Will you be able to come back next year? Well, now I don't rightly know. It depends. Micah saw her white, gnarled hand jut out of the crowd of bodies, its index finger pointed directly at him. Him. The relatives parted, and Mama stepped out, staring at Micah, grinning. You. You love your dog, don't you? You really love your dog. Micah felt his mouth opening and closing, like a catfish's mouth, unable to speak. Someone shouted and grabbed his hand. It was Paula. No! He don't love that dog! He hates it! You never seen a boy treat a dog so ugly! Uncle Ray turned and slapped Paula across the face, but she barely blinked and squeezed Micah's hand even tighter. Micah stared at his grandmother and surprised himself by what he said next. 
No, ma'am, I don't love cornbread much at all. At that, Micah had felt the hard sting of Daddy's hands swatting him on the butt. He met Mama's eyes once more and nodded. Yes, ma'am. Micah was still sitting by the last of the dying embers of the campfire after the men had walked Mama into the woods and the relatives had climbed into their cars and headed home, everyone having renewed their promise of never, ever revealing the miracle of Mama's visits to a soul. His daddy was inside, probably watching TV. Mama was doing the last of the dishes, taking extra doses of the medicine that she kept behind the box of detergent in the laundry room. Micah wondered if the medicine tasted like turkey, since there was a picture of one on the bottle. Cornbread, sensing that everyone was gone, came walking up to Micah. He licked at Micah's hand, tail wagging. Micah jumped out of his chair and headed towards the house. Go away, Cornbread! The dog, thinking that this was a game, ran around to head Micah off. He assumed his let's play pose, but in the air, front paws stretched out. His mouth was a gaping grin. Micah reached down and grabbed a handful of dirt, feeling it cake under his fingernails. He threw it at the dog as hard as he could. I said, go away! The dirt hit the dog in the face. Confused, he looked at Micah tail wagging hopefully. Go on, I hate you, old dog. With that, Cornbread tucked his tail between his legs and headed back through the darkness to the shed. Looking back at Micah once or twice with a melancholy confusion in his eyes, Micah felt something in his chest rip. Wait, wait, boy, I'm sorry. As Micah ran, Cornbread stopped and faced him, his tail wagging once again. Micah fell upon him, wrapping his arms around the mutt, burying his face in soft fur. Micah didn't know what he was feeling, but he knew that it was nothing that a six-year-old child should feel. It was a bad, grown-up feeling. He thought of Mama, the family's secret miracle. It was wrong. The miracle was wrong. You love your dog, don't you? He saw Mama's finger again, pointed at him by the dying firelight. I don't love you, Cornbread. Micah tightened his arms around his dog and rocked back and forth. Back and forth. I don't love you. I don't. I don't. One of the things about families that isn't so nice is sibling rivalry. In this case, a guy who isn't happy at all with his older brother. But in this tale, shared with us by author Angela Campbell, we discover that this is a rather special family, one that you won't meet until the very end. 
Performing this tale is Mike Delgadio. So listen as we wax poetic about the tale of Barry Reaper. Good day, dear sir, what's in your glass? Oh, me? I fancy rum. It gives me quite the kick, you see, and makes my insides numb. The rum dissolves my thoughts real quick, helps me forget the past. But in the morn I feel real sick and chug some pills real fast. What past, you ask, do I possess? Well, lean back in your seat. By another round, I say, you're in for quite a treat. A bit dizzy I am right now. Don't worry, I won't faint. As for the black coating my hands, no, sir, it's not paint. The name's Barry Reaper. No, I'm not the famous one. No doubt you'd know my brother Grim. He was the favorite son. Oh, growing up with perfect Grim was horrid in one word. Cause mom and dad did dote on him. Cause he they quite preferred. At six years old, he took his first. The pet mouse I named Fred. My parents ooed and odd at this. What skill he has, they said. But I stood there, a mess of tears, which no one saw me shed. To them, it was a miracle. To me... A friend was dead. When I was ten, a tiny bird lay injured on our street. I gathered her up in my arms. Her wings no longer beat. All night long I watched her chest. So slow it rose and fell. Come morning she was still alive. She'd make it. I could tell. But when I took a bathroom break, five minutes I was gone. When I got back, the bird had died, with Grim there looking on. Then, in my brother's sixteenth year, my dad once cleared his throat. To Grim I give my prized sickle. He keeps my pride afloat. He gave to Grim that farming scythe, the one with the sharpest blade. For ages it has been passed down. Its shine still does not fade. My father's actions hurt me bad. Deep down grew dark with envy. My eyes saw only shades of green. It's grim they love, not me. Four years on, I took a trip with my old roommate Paul. While riding on a ski lift, from up there he did fall. An accident, the news exclaimed. From high up did he drop. But no, I knew the real culprit. To home I flew nonstop. There he stood in our doorway, his face long and hollow. Barry, listen to me, Grimm said. A list I must follow. I don't decide who comes and goes. This you must surely know. Your friend is in a better place. It was his time to go. It was his time to go, I screamed. Grim, are you kidding me? He was 19, just a kid. 
This was your puppetry. That's what we are to you, right, Grimm? Just dolls in your death play? While you sever the strings of life, you snicker as you slay? With that, I left my home for good. All things I had to pack. I wanted to be done with Grimm, so I did not look back. For thirty years we did not speak. I moved and changed my name. I wed, had kids, and was quite blessed. But then the cancer came. The cancer came for my dear girl. My daughter, she was weak. Her chestnut hair fell out in tufts. Her once green eyes grew bleak. And then one morning at breakfast, there came a certain knocking, the clang of metal against wood, so sudden it was shocking. I knew he stood there listening. I did not make a sound, so I made sure the door was locked and then turned back around. A voice came through the door right then, one I had long repressed. Barry, you must understand. She must go now, he stressed. No, Grim, I said under my breath. You don't know what's at stake. If you take her, I too will die. My own life I will take. He stayed silent then for a while, stillness between wood boards. But then he spoke his final words, a warning I ignored. Barry, I love you so much, so I will leave her be. But now your child stays past her time. The blame's on you, not me. What is to come is not my fault. Events will soon unfurl. Do not come find me when they pass. I tried to help the girl. Right then I thought it was a trick, but weeks began to pass, and Grim Reaper did not return. Yes, I had one, at last. Hey, sir, your drink is empty now. The day is turning night. You must have better things to do than listen to my plight. No, sir, are you quite certain? You want to hear some more? Please tell me when to shut my mouth if I become a bore. My story becomes darker still. From death I tried to run. A battle I had thought complete had only just begun. My daughter was not quite herself. She soon began to change. Her body grew darker in shade. Her habits grew quite strange. The green eyes sank inside her skull. Not one word did she speak. Instead, she'd scream out loud for days with cold sweat on her cheek. Her bedroom reeked of foul decay. Think sour milk and heat. Yet it was always kept so clean, but stank of rotten meat. My son refused to go nearby. The dog would stay outside. Her skin is much too cold, Doc said. It's almost like she died. My daughter stayed alive, that's true. But there was quite a price. 
My wife moved out with baby Sue, and in moved hordes of mice. My son obtained a nasty cough. The doc looked up and said, His lungs are full of putrid gas. His throat is spurting red. And still my daughter stayed alive. My son, his skin turned gray. My wife married another man. My dog soon ran away. I found Grimm at a funeral. My father's, to be clear. What honor, I was told, he said, when Grimm took Daddy dear. Our eyes did meet over Dad's tomb. I grabbed at his black cloak. Grimm, I must speak with you right now. I'm losing all, I croaked. I tried to warn you, brother dear. Deep tears were in his eyes. Life fades to nothing without death. I told you to be wise. Too late I am to help you now, he did sadly explain. The deed you must handle yourself. You'll be forever stained. To home I went. Thoughts of his words made tight knots in my mind. I gazed down at my sleeping son. For so long I'd been blind. But now I was seeing quite clear. Into her room I went. A blast of noxious air hit me, and I choked on the scent. Around I fumbled in the dark, but found the body quick. The skin rancid, the bones brittle. I snapped her like a twig. From this wound did darkness spill. It squirted out from in. My hands now drenched with black fluid. My hands were stained with sin. Right then and there, her bones did melt. Her eyes burned in her head. Around the skin bubbled and dripped. I prayed that she was dead. But move she did, and sat up straight to look me in the eye. Her thawing mouth opened real wide to oust a heinous cry. This you have done, Barry Reaper. You've slain your firstborn child. Your greed ruined her peaceful sleep. Her soul has now run wild. It's lost somewhere between life and death. Your poor girl cannot rest. Your brother tried to help you so. A warning he expressed. The beast began to spit and writhe as to my knees I fell. Oh, please give me but one more chance to save her from this hell. I was a fool. Of that I'm sure. I did not understand that death can be a blessing, that Grimm's a helping hand. If life on earth was without bounds, all meaning it would lose. Time would be bland and love flippant. Each other we'd abuse. The brevity of life is cruel, but just give this one thought. Dear sir, do you maintain your price if you are never bought? If there's no risk of death, you see, we'd live forevermore. Then love would end, values expire, there'd be no end to war. 
Her teeth began to fall at once. Into her mouth they went. Her throat was black and from it came a strong metallic scent. She spoke again, the beast I mean, the voice chilling my spine. Barry, you know it's much too late to win your child some time. But there may be a way, perhaps, to cease your girl's dark curse. Dear Grimm has begged on your behalf. He'll tend your daughter's hearse. There is a toll on you, Barry. Repay me, that you must. One thousand years, your soul is mine. Your life you will entrust. During these years, you will not age. All that you love will pass. But you live on, cause you, Barry, you will be saved for last. And while you live for many years, I have a task for you. Because you blamed dear Grimm so long, part of his job you'll do. The black upon your hands, my child, will never wash away. You'll scrub and tear the skin right off. Forever it will stay. It is a mark of your offense to show the world your crime. And when they see black on your hands, they'll know it's now their time. With that last word, the ghost of death vanished straight from the room. Not one trace of my child was left, except my mark of doom. And end this is to my sad tale, so here I am today. Oh, sir, please stay. Do not get up. What's all the rush, I say? There's no one here but us for now. I mean... Except for him. But you don't need to turn around for you to know it's grim. Oh, please, dear sir, don't try to run. You'll only make it worse. You see, I'm here to tell my tale. It's all part of my curse. Barry the Black is what I'm called. Grim's foolish younger kin. I swindled death. Now this I have forever on my skin. How nice of you to join us, Grim. We are ready when you are. Oh, sir, please do not try to beg. It will not leave a scar. Your name is on the list, dear man. Yes, sir, you're young, we know. But death does have a strict schedule, and it's your time to go. With so much of the Northern Hemisphere gripped by icy winter weather, it's the perfect time for a story about Santa. 
A young child sneaking downstairs early one Christmas morning, only to discover the jolly old elf sneaking around. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, Santa isn't quite as jolly as you'd think. In fact, he seems decidedly sinister. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Jesse Cornett. So remember what the old song tells us? You'd better be good, for goodness sake. It's hard to fall asleep. I close my eyes extra tight, but it doesn't help. Tomorrow is Christmas, and when Santa came to our school, he said I might get a bike this year. A big kid's bike? He winked, and I think that meant yes. I can hear every sound from outside. I hear the cars passing by. The tires crunch over the salt the big trucks put out. Mom and Dad went to bed a while ago. I heard the TV in their room, but it's been quiet for a bit. I feel like I'm the only person in the whole world who is still awake. I can't be awake when Santa gets here. I think that's a rule, but I'm not sure. Thinking about sleeping only makes it harder to fall asleep. My favorite part of Christmas is going through my stocking. I get to do that early before mom and dad wake up. I try to remember what I got in my stocking last year, but I can only remember the chocolate coins in the gold foil. Thoughts of gold coins become thoughts about pirates, and somehow, I am dreaming. I do not have Christmas dreams, at least I don't think so. It seems like no time passes at all, but I am awake in bed and blinking as our neighbor's Christmas lights blink and twinkle over my bedroom wall. It is still dark out, but feels even quieter than before. There are no cars on the road, only the hum from the heater. Why am I awake? I don't have a clock in my room, and I need to check the time. Maybe it's early enough for my stocking, but I don't think it is. I think it's the middle of the night. I suck in a breath and whisper, Santa, I need to check the milk and cookies. That's how you know if Santa's come to your house. Dad said Santa might want a beer this year, but I don't think so. I tried a sip of Dad's beer once and spit it right back into the bottle. It tasted like when I put a battery on my tongue on a dare. I slip back into my Christmas pajamas, which had become too hot under my blankets. They're more for walking around, not sleeping in. I think about waking up my big brother, Jimmy, but he's never in a good mood when I wake him up, and he doesn't believe in Santa anyway. I don't know how people cannot believe in Santa. I give mom my list to mail to Santa every year, and at least some of the gifts show up. How else could that happen? How do the stockings get filled? I am mouse quiet in the hall. Mom and Dad's room is on the other side of the house, but Mom has special ears that hear when I'm doing something I'm not supposed to. There is a rainbow at the top of the stairs. Somehow, the Christmas tree lights reach all the way up here. I am extra careful as I walk down the stairs, making sure I don't land on the squeaky spots. If Mom caught me sneaking downstairs on Christmas morning, I might be in trouble and no kid wants to be in trouble on Christmas morning. I turn the corner and stand at the top of the second set of stairs. It is cold there, much colder than my room. There is also a little breeze. There are sounds coming from the first floor, 
and they seem like the wrong sounds for a still house on a Christmas morning, but I do not know what they are. I reach the bottom of the stairs without touching a squeaky spot, and it is even colder. As I shuffle to the living room, I see the front door is open. Now I know why it is so cold, but the front door should not be open. There are also puddles on the floor, in the shape of a shoe, with little bits of ice in them. I walk around the puddles to the front door. It is snowing again, and I feel like I can almost hear it. Maybe Dad went outside, but I don't know why. He sometimes gets up at night and checks all the locks on the doors, but he would never leave a door open. And there's something wrong with the doorknob. It's loose and jiggles when I hold it. I lock the door the best I can and turn my head. There's a little noise I recognize. It is the sound of a plate sliding over the wood of the dining room table. I know the sound because I've made it many times. I step around the puddles again and pass into the living room. All looks the same as when I went to bed, except there are new presents under the tree, but not the bike I was promised. That's, that's okay. Sometimes Santa hides big gifts like that. In the kitchen, the stove light is on. The green numbers on the microwave tell me it's 2.38 in the morning. I still have more than three hours until I can grab my stocking. The disappointment doesn't last long, as I notice the shape in the shadows of the dining room. Dad? There is no reply, so I flip the light on. Santa Claus is at the table. The real Santa Claus is at my dining room table. My heart jumps in my chest, first from surprise and then happiness. Santa! I take three quick steps forward, but stop. He wears a Santa suit, but it's not as nice as I remembered. It's not as nice as the one he wore to school. And the boots aren't real boots. They're just black sleeves that go over his sneakers. And there's a hole in the knee of his pants, and I can see the skin peeking through. The suit is baggy on him also. Looks like when I put on one of Dad's shirts. Santa? His beard is silver white and curly, but there are dark spots in the hair that look brownish red. Maybe Santa had spaghetti before he got into his sled that night. And his face is not round and merry anymore. He looks tired and thin. His nose is like an arrow pointing at the red stuff in his beard. Yes? I can barely hear him, and he's not looking at me. He's staring at the floor. Santa, what are you doing here? Don't you have to bring presents to the other kids? He holds a cookie in his hand, which I notice is dirty. The nails are black like when I play in the mud in the backyard. The other cookies are gone and so is most of the milk. There are black and red smudges on the glass, and I see droplets of milk in the hair above his lip. He clears his throat, looks at me for a second, then takes a bite of the cookie. I tried to... Cookie crumbs fall out of his mouth into his beard. His beard is crooked on his face, and it doesn't move the way it should when he chews. He also doesn't sound the same. Santa at school had a happy voice. Now he sounds sad. You don't want to be late. I want to ask him about my bike, but I don't think it's the right time for that. More crumbs fall out of his mouth as he chews. I'm never late. His voice sounds angry now, and I take a step backward. When he looks at me, it makes me feel funny inside. Santa at school made me funny in a good way, an excited way. Now I feel like all my insides are changing places. 
I scratch behind my ear and think of what to do. I wish I stayed in bed. I could be back asleep and dreaming. I think I might be in trouble because of the way Santa's looking at me. <sighs> Tried to do something special? Well, you see how that turned out. He finishes the cookie and dusts his hands off on his suit. As he does, his elbow bumps into something I had not noticed. There is a knife on the table. Dad has one like it, but with a compass in the handle. He called it a survival knife or something like that. I don't think he's ever used it or had plans to. He just takes it out and looks at it sometimes. Santa sits up a bit straighter and the chair makes a groaning sound. I'm afraid Mom will hear and come down the stairs. If she finds me here with Santa, she will be double mad. I think I should go to bed, Santa. As I turn, he reaches out and grabs my wrist. It hurts a little, and I try to pull my arm back. You see how that turned out, huh? A nice little surprise on Christmas. A nice memory for my kids. My kids. They, they, they call me by my first name now. Can you believe that? Santa doesn't have kids. He has elves. His eyes are all red like he hasn't slept in a long time, and his breath smells like kind of cookies and kind of like Dad's beer. With a beard, it's tough to tell, but he doesn't look like he did at my school. It's darker in the dining room, but I'm almost positive it is not the same Santa. Above where his beard ends, there is a black and silver stubble. His eyebrows are that color, not white like they should be. Santa, you're hurting me. His eyes are shaking, and he's staring at me, but I think he's seeing something else. Something in his mind. He looks at the dirty hands holding onto my wrists and seems to not know where he is for a moment. And he lets go of my wrists and looks at the red and brown splotches on his hand, the same colors that stain his white cuffs. Then he looks at the knife. I would never hurt you. Why would you say that? Why... Would you say that? Last year, I saw Santa in two different stores on the same day. Dad said Santa can't be everywhere, and so he sometimes has people he trusts dress as him. They pretend to be Santa and pass along the list. I think this is not the real Santa. He's not the Santa from my school. He looks through the blinds, which are partially open. The house across the street is dark like it always is. It is the only house on our street that does not decorate for Christmas. There are two kids in the house, and a mom, but I hardly ever see them. Sometimes, when Dad and I play football outside, the little boy watches us through the window like a ghost. Like he's trapped there. He never waves, and he never smiles. I just wanted to surprise them on Christmas. They're my kids, too. He says this through his teeth. He grabs the handle of the knife, and my heart beats faster in my chest. I don't know why Santa's helper would need a knife like that. It looks scary. It looks wet. There are a million things happening on his face now. He might cry or laugh or... Now I hope Dad will get up to check the locks. I hope Mom will hear the noise we make and wake up. Maybe Jimmy will get a drink of water. His hand tightens around the knife handle, and his chest is rising and falling so fast, as if he's running and can't catch his breath. He slowly turns his head to face me again. He is smiling now, but not in a kind way. He tugs at his beard and it shifts across his face. 
I guess it doesn't matter now. Maybe if I cough, Dad will wake up. The man, Santa's helper, holds the knife in front of him now. I am scared. I feel like running, like I can't catch my breath. Were you a good little boy this year? He taps his finger on his legs and smiles. His teeth are long and dark, and I hope it is the chocolate from the cookies that makes them this way. I am thinking of all the bad things I did this year. Like my brother and I were wrestling like they do on TV and I accidentally elbowed his mouth. He had to put his tooth in a glass of milk and take it to the dentist. I'm thinking of all the times I didn't do my homework, but I think overall I was good. I tried to be. Yes, I was very good. Oh, kids say that. My kids say that. But I guess being good doesn't mean what it used to. He looks out the window again, at the house across the street. I think about the sad boy. I think about the word he used. Said. Santa? Yes? I changed my mind about my present. Present? The bike. I I still want one, but not for me. Can you give it to the boy across the street? I I don't know his name, but maybe if he had a bike, he would come outside. Maybe we could be friends. Santa looks confused. His black and silver eyebrows are dancing. Could be friends. He looks sad all the time. Maybe if he had a bike, he would come outside. Santa holds the knife up, and all my muscles feel fuzzy, like they want to go different directions. It feels like a long time we say nothing. Santa puts the knife on the table next to the plate of cookies. He stands, and I see he is very tall and skinny. He is looking at his hands again, and there are tears in his red eyes. Santa has to go now. You're a good boy. Always be a good boy. His hand hovers over my head as if he's going to pat it, but he doesn't. I follow behind him as he walks through the living room. He does not step around the shoe-shaped puddles, but I do. He unlocks the door and walks out onto the porch. There are already tracks in the snow, his, I imagine, and he follows them through the yard to the sidewalk. He walks as if he is dreaming. His arms are loose by his side, and his head is straight forward. I notice there is a new car in the driveway of the house across the street. It is a new car, but very old and boxy looking. I don't think I've seen it before. Santa enters the house and closes the door behind him. I close my door and lock it. I am awake for a long time, but I do fall back asleep. It is light in my room when I wake. I remember Santa at once and decide it must have been a dream. And although it is Christmas morning, I am not excited about my stalking. I hit every squeaky spot on the stairs. There is already a lot of noise coming from the first floor. No need to be quiet now. Dad is standing in the hallway leading to the front door. There is a policeman there nodding his head. Dad points to the floor where there are still a few of the little puddles and shrugs his shoulders. They both look out the door to the house across the street. I only see for a second before Mom pulls me away. A tall, thin man in a Santa suit sits in the back of a police car. 
there are a lot of police cars and ambulances, and he has no beard now. He looks at me and nods his head before the car drives away. I did get a bike that Christmas. I often rode it past the still quiet house across the street and remembered the little boy who used to live there. In our final tale, we meet a midwife who has been summoned to a remote home to assist with childbirth. However, as we learn from author Sinead Prasad, this is not a happy occasion. The expectant mother seems to be delusional about the fate of her unborn child. Perhaps it's just the stress of the birth, or perhaps her fears are real. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, and Mary Murphy. So don't worry, I'm sure the midwife will make sure everything will be fine. Just relax and prepare for motherhood. I knew what having a child meant. Not because I had any myself, but because by the ripe old age of 28, I'd birthed nearly 5,000 babies. Most of them even survived past infancy. Births are every bit as gruesome as one might expect. It's not just the blood. It's the eldritch whores that gush out of the orifice that once brought pleasure. Placenta, uterine linings, the tissue and blood clots that emerge to remind you of the peculiarities of the human body. Of course, then, there's the main event. A screaming purple-blue entity that now has an iron grip upon you, clinging to your neck, desperate for warmth. It will suckle at your breast for the milk you now produce, leaving bites and bruises and a sagging body you don't even recognize. The child, a parasite of your own making. My mother gave birth to my brother when I was seven. I listened, ear at the door while she shrieked, pushing and pushing as the midwife commanded sternly. When I finally saw him, my stomach churned. His wrinkly arms, pudgy legs, and damp hair pasted onto his forehead revolted me. I proclaimed loudly to my family that I'd never have a child of my own. My father laughed and said I'd surely change my mind one day when I met the right person. What did meeting the right person have to do with anything? Becoming a midwife was the only way I could foresee avoiding the trouble that came with being an unmarried, childless spinster. 
As long as people saw me surrounded by the damn things, I wouldn't be ashamed for not having one of my own. Thus, my whole life revolved around birth. If, at the end of the day, I could hand the child to its weary mother or wet nurse, wash my hands of blood and mucus, and go home to a peaceful chair and book, I was content. Some people wondered if I was lonely. Lonely. Sure. Nothing clawing at my breast and breaking the tender skin looking for nourishment. How lonely. No husband frowning at me in disbelief that I couldn't magic a boy heir out of my womb to carry on his line of violent, deceitful, power-hungry men. Tragic. No one to keep from soiling themselves or wailing themselves into exhaustion on bitter winter nights. A travesty. I received a letter on a brisk November morning requesting my services in Stowe, Vermont. I'd be required for a month at least. The gentleman wrote with a harried scrawl, and I could already tell the type. Young, kindly, and thrilled for the imminent arrival of his firstborn. From what I could make out from his atrocious penmanship, I'd birthed his nephew last year. A healthy lad, now 16 months old. His sister had spoken highly of me and my remedies for all the accompanying pregnancy woes. His wife, it seemed, was having a particularly hard third trimester. And now, weeks away from birth, she was having nightly fits. With her parents dead and his away in London, perhaps the supervision of a midwife around the clock would be wise. Hmm... A month away from my little house. I balked initially at the thought, but I looked up from his letter and the snow fell hard outside my window. I thought of how bleak Thanksgiving could be here. Some time away in a nice colonial Vermont home seemed like it could be just the thing. Plus, he'd offered my first week's daily fee up front. A trusting man who by all accounts cared for his pregnant wife I'd be remiss not to take on Samuel Gwynn as a client. I sent word back that I'd arrive the following Monday. I love travel as much as I hate children. The monotony and solitude suits me. The train ride was pleasant, filled with coffee and books. The views from the window were sublime and I felt cozy and serene in my cushioned car. At Stowe Station, the snow was falling lightly, coating the picturesque town in a wintry blanket. I tightened my scarf around my neck as I hopped off the car. The taxi to the Gwyn's modest colonial was just under 30 minutes. As we pulled up front, I noted that the house nearly blended into the brumal surroundings. The surly driver helped lug my belongings to the front porch and waited with me after I knocked on the door. Footsteps pounded hurriedly from within the house. 
The door shot open, and a harried Samuel Gwyn greeted us. Dearest Miss Dresden, I can't express to you how relieved I am that you're here. His voice was earnest, and I blushed slightly at his words. He paid the driver once my things were brought into the foyer, and soon we were alone in the hall. A gust of wind whirred through the cracks of the aging floorboards, and I drew my coat tighter. Sam noted this gesture, and like a child's toy being switched on, threw out his hands. Let me show you to the fire. Silly of me, you're rosy from the cold. He led me to the sitting room, the fire crackling in the hearth, and a cup of tea getting cold on a table next to the armchair. I followed him into the room and he took my coat, buzzing away into the hall to hang it. He returned and we took seats across from each other, me on the red cushioned sofa and he on the patchy green armchair. I wondered if all of the furniture in the house was as higgledy-piggledy as it appeared to be in here. The young couple probably inherited the things in the house from relatives after the wedding. In five minutes with Sam Gwynn, I could tell he was the sort who was too polite to refuse any sort of gift. The sofa was my aunt's. Eyesore, isn't it? <laughs> when might I visit Mrs. Gwynn? It wasn't like most husbands to entertain the midwife for so much as a few minutes. Never mind sit down by the hearth with them. Pay the bill. Reap the benefits of neglecting your wife was how it usually worked. Last I checked, she was sound asleep. It's unlike her, you know, to be asleep at this hour. He peeked up at the clock on the mantel. It was just after five. The sky was darkening already. This time in the pregnancy can take its toll. You might be aware that during medieval times, many pregnant women were quarantined and forced to rest all day in a dark room. I had heard that, yes. Barbaric. I only say it's unusual for Madeline because she insisted on being active while preparing for the baby. Up until a few weeks ago, she was still walking to the store, scraping ice off the porch and cooking full meals. Now she can barely walk. I felt my brow furrow farther than I would have liked it to in that moment. I didn't realize it was so bad. The fits you told me about, the nightly ones. Describe them, please. I folded my hands on my knees, leaning forward, a listening technique I'd been taught by a particularly memorable governess. Sam sighed, describing the typical accounts of night terrors, shrieking outbursts, and cold sweats that accompany many flus. I'm not doing it justice, though. You'll see for yourself tonight. My room at the Gwyn's was comfortable and quaint. I took a good amount of time hanging my clothes and laying out my supplies. I wanted to feel comfortable so I could make Mrs. Gwyn feel safe and cared for. I couldn't if my mind was chaotic and my things were strewn about in cramped quarters. Midwifery is so very tactile. 
all the possible bedlam of the human body colliding in on itself. Those who practice must be the opposite in every way. Samuel had the cook, Mrs. Corbin, bring my supper to the room, and I ate while I wrote a letter to my brother. At half-past eight, I slipped into Madeline Gwynne's room, the master bedroom. According to Samuel, he'd start every night by sleeping alongside his wife. Once the fits began, he'd move to the second bedroom, checking on her well-being once every hour or so. I made my way to Madeline Gwynne's bed, medical bag in hand. I saw the slight rise and fall of breath from the lump of tan sheets. First things first, I'd be changing the linens the next day. Something between a red and a black for Sam's sake. The feather was so slight that I feared he'd lose his balance at the first drop of blood. Tan sheets wouldn't do. Mrs. Gwynne? The lump stirred and a thin pale arm emerged from the comforter, waving at me. The famed Miss Dresden. Her voice was thin as tissue paper. No one has ever called me famous before. I smirked as I set down my bag, removing a thermometer and hiding the bag underneath the bed. Most people were horrified by the things I kept in my angry leather tote. Tongs, forceps, vials of various potions, etc. While I never wanted to surprise clients with the contents of my bag, seeing the sharp edges and suturing supplies before they had to contemplate the various metals I'd be injecting into their canals did no one any favors. Samuel's sister said she wouldn't have survived without your quick thinking and calm bedside manner. Their little Charlie is doing well. Just said his first words last month. Madeline pushed the covers down, revealing her gaunt face. Her dark red hair was unkempt, spiraling past her shoulders in limp clumps. Her hazel eyes appeared cloudy and exhausted. I didn't allow my expression to betray my concern as I studied her willowy frame. Thin, frail mothers often had the most issues postpartum. I'd be sure to mention to the cook that Madeline would be requiring extra portions. Were those words Mama or Papa? Madeline smiled, anticipating my question. Pancakes. She laughed a vibrant, hearty laugh that quickly devolved into coughing. I took her temperature. One hundred. Not terrible, but not ideal. I wet a washcloth and placed it on her forehead to quell the heat of her skin before taking a seat in the wooden chair next to the bed. How are you feeling, Madeline? I placed my hand upon hers. Establishing contact was one of my main methods of calming patients. Once I felt her bony arms relax, I opened my bag at my feet and poured out a bit of syrup, a draft of my mother's design. It would knock her out cold within ten minutes. 
Oftentimes when I administered this particular potion, family members would fear that the woman had died, for the deep sleep resembled death. The days are pleasant. No kicking, no nausea. Just... <sighs> the fear. Fear of pain? I can help with that. Soon after birth, you'll forget the pain and will be ready to work on a sibling. I held the vial of syrup to her mouth and without questioning me, she drank it. I wasn't lying to be kind or deceitful. This was usually the way with women. The female body is created for enduring the pains of the world. It's no wonder that our memories of severe agony are chastened in our memory, evaporating as quickly as they happen. We don't think there will be another for at least a few years. Samuel and I like the idea of an older sibling. Not just a bit older, but someone the younger one can really learn from and lean on. A guardian angel. I set to smoothing the bedsheets and refilling Madeline's water glass. I'd need the bedside tables to be clear of clutter in case the baby decided to come early. Madeline lay still as I puttered about her room. I couldn't help but proudly notice that her coughing had subsided. Samuel entered timidly. All looks well for the night. I smiled at him. His face was pale and his eyes flitted back and forth from me to his wife. Excellent, Miss Dresden. I hope you have a comfortable sleep. Please let me know if I can get anything for you. I nodded and made my way out the door. Samuel caught my arm. The noise. The screaming. I hope it isn't too alarming. <laughs> I've heard more screams in my line of work than I hope you will in your lifetime. Madeline's shrieks woke me just past midnight. I stepped out of bed, the floorboards frosty under my bare feet. Hastening to the bedroom, I found Madeline convulsing under her bedsheets, face down. Careful not to startle her, I took her by the shoulders and slowly turned her onto her back. The veins in her forehead were bulging, and her eyes were wide open. Bloodshot. Assuming this was a waking nightmare, I attempted no sudden movements to wake her. I had been whacked in the face by more than one sleeping mother-to-be. I took the cloth from her bedside and wiped down her sweaty face. I moved to the foot of the bed, raising the blankets up so I could check on her dilation. It wasn't time yet. Running my hands across her swollen belly, I couldn't feel any sort of contraction or kicking. Even her fever had gone down thanks to my mother's remedy and the cool towels. Don't take my baby. I lowered the blankets to look at her face, but her gaze was fixed on the ceiling. 
She lowered her eyes to mine, and I could have sworn she saw me through the nightmare. Don't let her have it. My shoulders shivered involuntarily. I applied necessary oils to her birthing canal, should contractions begin in the night. Then I set up a pillow and blanket on the chair next to her bed and fell asleep to the sound of Madeline's moans. I awoke to sunlight streaming into my eyes, the sort of sunlight that's reflected off ice, making it almost too bright to bear. Throwing the blanket off, I reached for Madeline's head. No fever. She was sound asleep. I went to my room to freshen up for the day and headed to the kitchen. Samuel sat at the kitchen table, reading the paper through impossibly small spectacles. Mrs. Corbin flipped bacon, and my stomach rolled over in anticipation. Samuel looked up at me. That was a fairly tame night. There's nothing to worry about. Her fever is gone, and I'm happy to stay up with her while she sorts out her inner demons. I smiled and sat down across from him. Samuel nodded thoughtfully. He continued to gaze down at his paper, although from the way his eyes glazed over, I could tell he wasn't actually reading. And so it went on like this for over two weeks. To bed at night, only to be woken by the tortured screams of Madeline Gwynn. I concluded that it was a recurring dream. Terror induced by pregnancy. The half-formed scrounger within her, causing mayhem before it even drew breath. The relentless requests directed at me continued. Don't let them steal it! I wondered what horrors she saw with those glassy mid-dream eyes. What caused her to claw at her sheets and sweat through pillowcase after pillowcase? I'd ask her upon her waking, but she could never recall. On a particularly blustery Friday three weeks into my stay, there was a knock at the door. Madeline had made her way to the sitting room, and we were both deeply engrossed in our books. Samuel was at work, and Mrs. Corbin was at the market. Would you mind terribly? It will take me a fortnight to get over there. Madeline smiled her sweet, gone smile at me. I rose and went to open the door. On the other side stood a girl with shocking red hair curling down her back underneath a green wool hat. She held a pie in her mittened hands. Her eyes were unlike any other I'd ever seen. Gray. They seemed to swirl the way cream swirled in black coffee. Her voice was as high as anything. My mother sent me with this for Mrs. Gwynn. We heard her baby is due any day now. How lovely. 
I let her into the foyer. We live at the edge of the forest. Mother works at the post office with Mr. Gwent. Come in out of the cold. Shoes go over there. I gestured to the rack, then walked ahead of her into the sitting room to warn Mrs. Gwynne of our guest. This young girl has come bearing dessert. Madeline turned to face the girl, teacup in hand. Oh, my! What is the occasion? Your baby, of course. Mother is so excited for you. Remind me, who is your mother again? My mind is utterly boggled with this child inside me stealing all of my wits. The girl smiled, handing me the pie. She walked boldly to the fireplace and removed her gloves, stuffing them under the arm of her coat. Toasting her hands by the fire, her sing-song voice quietly sifted back to us. Mother said you might not remember. Mother remembers you, though. Mother thinks about you all the time. Mother forgives you for leaving. <laughs> the sound of Madeline dropping her teacup spurred me into action. Thank your mother for the pie. Mrs. Gwynne needs her rest. I practically shoved the girl away from the fireplace. She didn't flinch. I led her to the front door where she slipped into her shoes with the grace of a ballerina and headed out the door. Get home quickly, the storm isn't letting up. I shut the door with a slam behind her and watched her traipse down the icy path away from the house through the window. She turned at the end of the pathway and I swore I saw her lips curl up into a smile. I took my seat again in the sitting room. If she comes back... I won't let her in. She said her mother works at the post office with Samuel. Who is she? There are no women who work at the post office. I must get to Samuel. Absolutely not. You'll slip on your way out the door. He'll be home shortly. Madeline rushed past me, making a beeline for the front door. She wrenched it open. As she did, a wave of sharp icicles plunged from the awning to the porch below. They shattered like crystals on a marble floor. I shut the door. Please explain. The icicle crash sobered Madeline. She held her stomach as she hobbled back to the sofa. I followed behind, my hand on her shoulder for support. She sat with a groan. The sight of her would have been humorous under any other circumstances. A giant ball sinking into the soft cushions, scrambling to latch onto something. I raced to the kitchen for some towels to sop up the spilled tea, then returned and scooped the broken glass into the damp towel. Madeline, the girl, who is she? 
Her hands trembled. I sat next to her and held them firmly. She turned her face to me, tears streaming down her cheeks. I was hoping I was just going mad. You won't believe me if I tell you what is happening. Even if I don't believe you, I will try to help in whatever way I can. You're pragmatic, Miss Treston. Samuel's sister mentioned that about you. Tell me, who was that girl? Madeline stared into her hands before speaking. I was adopted when I was around seven. A family in Ipswich found me on the outskirts of town while heading to the river for a picnic. Before then, I was a captive. My real mother died during childbirth. While my father mourned, she snuck into our house and kidnapped me. I remember her now as a dark, gray figure, larger than any human. Black hair like snakes, skin rotting from the bone. She was more akin to the undead than any human. I kept my eyes focused and restrained myself from interjecting. I lived in the woods with this fae for years, playing with her other kidnapped children and reveling in the outdoors. I was happy. The children were always changing. Some would leave and new ones would appear. I'd help care for the infants as I grew older. Though I wondered where the older children were disappearing to, I never asked. Mother, I called her mother, always wept when one left. One night, Jane, the sister I was closest to, told me that the next day it was her turn to leave. Mother said it was time for her to grow up. I knew what grown-ups were from pictures and books and from running across them in the woods from time to time. Mother didn't want Jane to tell me she was disappearing. But Jane couldn't help herself. She said she missed me terribly. Curious, the next day I followed behind Mother and Jane as they went deep into the woods. I longed to watch the transformation myself. Mother stroked Jane's hair and kissed her head. Jane smiled up at Mother. Mother's hand slid down to Jane's ears and I heard a snap. Jane fell to the ground. Dead. <gasps> I gasped. Madeline didn't seem to notice. She continued her tale. The next day, I snuck back to that cursed place. Jane was gone. That's when they found me. The Harmons and their little daughter, Alice. They adopted me. A crying child in the woods. For years, I thought I'd truly escaped. Until finally, Samuel and I became pregnant. The dreams began. She found me, 
But she doesn't want me now. I'm old. Past my expiration date for her to love. She wants to take my baby for her never-ending cycle of motherhood. And when it's no longer young and innocent, she'll kill it and find another. For a moment, I just stared. I knew the sorts of things a pregnant mind could make a woman believe. But something in Madeline's speech made the story seem almost second nature. These were not the ramblings of someone who needed to be committed. What can I do to help? It doesn't matter what happens to me. Just make sure she can't get the baby. Is she a ghost? What are the extent of her... abilities? The question surprised me. My brain was working at a level that the rest of me was not quite on yet. Madeline's eyelids fluttered in harried thought. It was a long time ago. She's fast and strong. And I don't know what, if anything, can kill her. Her power of persuasion is her most formidable ability. That's why I'm so worried about Samuel. Perhaps you can run to the post office and make sure he's okay? I won't leave you alone here. I'll phone the office. As if on cue, the front door opened. I rose and Madeline grabbed my arm. Careful. I nodded and walked out to the foyer. Ah, Mr. Gwynne. Home at last. We were worried about you in the storm. Samuel stood in the doorway, his coat covered in powdery snow. He smiled at me, but his eyes were unblinking. They looked different in this light. An entirely different color. Almost gray. He didn't move to take off his coat. Mr. Gwynne? Oh, hello. I have a message from Madeline. Would you be so kind as to relay it to her? Samuel's voice was bright. It didn't fit his usual nervous energy. Why not relay it yourself? Sam grinned at me. Mother will be coming for the baby tonight. No need to prepare for her arrival. My skin prickled. Stay where you are, Madeline. I said it loudly enough for her to hear. The grin stayed plastered on Samuel's face as something started moving inside his throat. At first, the lump looked like his Adam's apple, bobbing up higher than usual. But the mound began to grow until I heard a gut-wrenching snap. Samuel's head flew back, his neck snapped by the lump within. My hands flew to my face to muzzle the sound of my gasp. He crumpled to the ground. He was dead although his lips were still curled up into a chilling grin. Miss Dresden? 
Don't come out here, Mrs. Gwyn. You stay put. It was futile. I heard her waddling steps getting closer and closer. I rushed to the closet and tore my coat off a hanger, covering Samuel's body with it before she could round the corner into the foyer. He's gone, isn't he? Madeline leaned in the doorway, not bothering to look down at the crumpled body on the floor. Mrs. Gwynne, we have to get out of here. We should go to the hospital. Or I don't... know a church? Madeline almost cackled at my suggestion. Half the children she kidnapped came from nunneries. She isn't afraid of anything that I know of. Madeline was leaning hard against the wall now. Her face scrunched in pain. I ran back to the closet to fetch her coat, ready to brave the storm and hail a car to anywhere that wasn't here. I was away from her for 15 seconds at most, but in that time it happened. She looked down at the hardwood floor beneath her. The floor was slick with her fluids. From the way she was breathing, I could tell the baby would be here soon. We weren't going anywhere. Come. I took her by the wrist and walked with her up the stairs, keeping her gaze up and not at the lump that was her husband on the floor. Madeline didn't fight me as I lay her down in bed. I'd changed the sheets to a nearly black navy. Though since Samuel wouldn't be joining us for the birth, I reached into my bag and slid a white towel underneath her lower back so I could keep an eye on blood loss. Her groans began within minutes. Contractions. It was coming fast. I worked quickly, removing all of my instruments and guiding her breath to ease the pain. I administered a draft I'd prepared a week ago in anticipation for the birth. I had no idea if my concoction would be any sort of bomb at this late stage. I checked Madeline's dilation and determined that the baby would be here within the hour. As Madeline screamed, something slammed against the bedroom window right behind the headboard. I nearly faltered but kept a hand on Madeline's shoulder as I scrambled onto the bed and ripped the curtain back from the window. The window was cracked but not entirely broken. Perhaps a bird or a tree branch hid it in the storm. I kept talking to Madeline as she shrieked it's and massaged her shoulders. Okay, her outbursts were stilted, almost as though she was making noise to keep herself from thinking. A door slammed downstairs. Madeline inhaled sharply and looked to me with wide eyes. Mrs. Corbin... Only the cook returned from break. She always came in through the back door. I prayed for her sake that she avoided the foyer. Madeline nodded furiously, her gaze not straying from mine. I squeezed her hand and hopped off the bed to call for Mrs. Corbin. At the foot of the stairs, I saw Samuel's body, 
my coat strewn over his gruesome neck. I admit that it shocked me all over again. Mrs. Corbin? I saw her shadow on the wall before I saw her. Mrs. Corbin stepped into the foyer, still in her warm mahogany winter coat. Mrs. Corbin, Samuel had a fall. He's... And Mrs. Gwynne is in labor. Please, would you boil a pot of water? Instead of springing into action, Mrs. Corbin simply looked up at me. Her gaze didn't even shift to the crumpled body of her employer. A violent chill ran down my body from my ears to my shoulders to my ankles. Mrs. Corbin's lips turned up into a horrid grin. Shit! An expletive escaped my lips as I raced back into Madeline's room, shutting and locking it behind me. With the adrenaline of a man running from a hungry lion, I dragged the Gwyn's chest of drawers in front of the door. Madeline watched me through her bellows of anguish. The storm outside was getting louder, and the sky was darkening quickly. I guided Madeline through her final pushes of labor, before the cries of a healthy baby circulated through the room. Madeline looked down at the baby in my arms, eyes full of terror. The umbilical cord stopped pumping, so I took my clamps and separated mother from child. I won't. He has his eyes. Bright blue. Madeline let out a high-pitched squeal. I couldn't tell if it was a laugh or a cry. I looked down at the slimy, innocent creature. A slam on the bedroom door shocked me out of my stupor. I worked quickly wrapping the fresh newborn in the swaddling that was prepared next to the bed. I dosed it with a draft of the pain syrup I'd been giving Madeline and set it in the crib that Sam had purchased weeks ago. The child's cries subsided almost instantly. I took the once white towel from underneath the new mother and lay the blankets back over her freezing cold legs. I wiped down her forehead and gave her the last of my potion. The banging on the door grew more frantic. Get out of here! Shh, shh. I gently shushed her, putting more pillows around her head for comfort. I realized I was still holding the umbilical shears. I pushed the chest of drawers away from the door. I held up my shear so Madeline would understand. She nodded. I unlocked the door. The pounding stopped. With a deep breath, I swung the door open. Mrs. Corbin lunged at me, 
her usually brown eyes swirling gray. At nearly a foot shorter, I was no match for her strength. I was pulled over onto the floor. She raced to the crib. I leaped up, shears overhead, and pounced on her, digging the blades deep into her back. I heard flesh and muscle tear, and the cook fell onto the floor. A gust of gray wind flew from her mouth, and she collapsed. I was relieved to see the rise and fall of her chest. Her possession had not taken her life. But where had mother gone? I dropped the bloody scissors. Madeline smiled. She's gone. I don't know about that. I frowned, looking around the room for a sign of her. Madeline swung her legs to the side of the bed and stood. Mrs. Gwynne, please, you aren't strong enough yet. Her dress was positively gruesome with bloodstains. I need to see him. Madeline walked towards the crib. There would be no stopping a mother in pursuit of her child. I helped her lifting the baby out and tightening the swaddling as I handed him to her. She grinned, ear to ear as she looked down at him, holding him tightly to her chest. Too tightly. Mrs. Gwynne, not too hard. Why, this is the happiest day of my life. <laughs> it is. My thoughts went to the mangled body of Samuel downstairs. Poor Mrs. Corbin, who was losing blood by the second on the floor in front of us. As Madeline held the boy, rocking him gently, I bent down for my bag and got to work, bandaging Mrs. Corbin. She'd need medical attention soon if she were to survive her wound. I'd call the doctor as soon as I felt safe leaving Madeline and the baby for a moment. What's wrong with him? I turned to her and saw them. Her gray eyes. My fingers went cold, and I made every effort to not let my face betray what I knew. Let me see him. I stood. Reluctantly, she let me take him. I turned away from her and peeked down at the child's face. Eyes shut tight, face pinched. No rise or fall of the chest, cold to the touch. Spinning around, I trembled as I spoke. Dead. Madeline's eyes widened. Her arms shook, and from deep within her belly, I heard the rising of a shriek. When it finally emerged from her throat, it was a guttural scream of despair. Gray smoke and wind blasted out of her body from every which way. The gust swirled around the room, wailing and knocking pictures from the walls. 
breaking the glass of the light fixtures. Madeline's body fell to the floor with a thud. The massive wind shot through the broken window. Shards of glass flew everywhere, cutting Madeline's rosy skin as she lay on the floor. I shielded the child from the fragments. Mother no longer possessed poor Madeline Gwynne. Kneeling down, I felt for a heartbeat I knew wasn't there. I put my fingers to my lips and kissed them before touching them to her cold forehead. I phoned a doctor to the house and then raced to my room, still holding the rigid child. I gathered my things into the worn-out bag I'd lugged into the house nearly a month ago. I raced down the stairs as fast as I could with a bag, a baby, and a nagging fear weighing me down. I pulled out one of Samuel's oversized coats out of the closet and threw it on. I didn't dare move my own jacket from his lifeless body. Wrenching the door open, I stepped out into the dark gale. The wind whipped at my face and tears and snot froze to my skin. After hours of traipsing through the torrential hail, my snow-soaked feet made it to the train station. In a daze, I boarded the first train that pulled in. With a baby in my arm, the ticket taker was much more obliged to help me with my bag. Let me get that for you, ma'am. Oh, what a cute little fella. He hoisted it into a compartment, freeing me to take a seat in a warm, cushioned car. I sat down and held my finger underneath the baby's nose, feeling its tiny, warm breaths upon my icy skin. My draft had done the trick. The baby slept like death itself. No mother was the wiser. And I prayed as the train lurched forward to somewhere unknown that she wouldn't follow us. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. 
please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 